Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. We have talked a lot in recent years about opioids, in particular the drug Oxy and how just destructive it has been, the addictions that it has caused, the problems that it has caused, not just here in BC, but all over North America. Well, Purdue Pharma is the company that made billions upon billions of dollars by selling the prescription painkiller OxyContin. And they have been widely criticized and sued by lots of people because it is alleged that they ignored the warning signs. They ignored mass prescriptions. Uh, they ignored any possible efforts that could have been made to kind of halt opioid abuse problems before they started. Well, now, in light of all those lawsuits, comes the news that last night, Purdue Pharma filed for bankruptcy in the United States, and that is just days after reaching a tentative settlement with many of the state and local governments that are suing the company. Now, this filing was anticipated, but what does this mean for the people who have sued? What does it mean for the company? And is this just some kind of a step to avoid kind of facing the music with all these lawsuits. To talk more about this, we are joined now by Adam Lavatin, who's a professor specializing in bankruptcy at Georgetown Law. Adam, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Simi. Good to talk with you. Was this inevitable that a company this big facing that many lawsuits would do this? Yes, it was. Um, one of the problems for a company that's, being fed, that's facing thousands of lawsuits is it's just too difficult and too expensive to defend against all of them, even if the company had completely meritorious defenses. And I'm, I'm not saying that's the case here. Um, the, what Purdue is doing with its bankruptcy filing is it's bringing all of the different lawsuits into a single forum. And it is there, by having every, all the litigation going on through the bankruptcy court, it will have greater ability to coordinate um, it, it's some sort of a settlement uh, with uh, regarding the litigation. That settlement may, in the end, not be something that all the parties agree to. Right. But the U.S. bankruptcy law allows um, uh, would allow a settlement to effectively be imposed upon non-consenting parties if. Purdue's proposal fits certain, meets certain uh, requirements. Right. So this is strategic then? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So then what does this mean for the actual company? Is that the end of Purdue Pharma? No, not at all. I, basically, what's going to happen is Purdue, the um, ownership of Purdue is going to get transferred to a bunch of uh, Purdue's creditors. Presumably, it's going to be the, very, the various states and local governments that have um, opioid-related claims. They're going to end up owning Purdue. And uh, Purdue, you know, Purdue produces stuff besides opioids, and it will continue to function. And the states that end up owning the Purdue stock will just sell it off into the market and you know, convert it to cash. And the, the real question in the bankruptcy is how much the money the Sackler family, that's the family that indirectly 
owns Purdue, how much they're going to kick in in order to get a release for claims against them. Right, because the Sackler family has really become the center of all this, haven't they, Adam? Because people want to know what they knew while they were running this company, what did they do or not do, and how much money are they still keeping for themselves? Oh yeah, they've they've taken out quite a bit of money from the company, and they've been quite, and they were quite active in, in involvement in it. And, and they're not you know, the you know, so one of at least one of the Sacklers who was running the company was a medical doctor. He you know, presumably understood quite well what what the drugs that they were selling. So um, the, the the difficulty that some of the produced creditors face is there are time limitations on how long. You can go uh, how far back you can go after money that was transferred out of Purdue. And in basically the best case scenario, it's probably six years. Right. And yet they, we know they've been transferring money out long before that. That's right. So there's going to be, you know, there, there will be, there's some money that the Sacklers took out of Purdue that will never be, never be clawed back. Uh, that's pretty clear. Yeah, this sounds so frustrating, though, Adam, because then I wonder where, and I'm sure other people do, where is the accountability for a company that clearly saw the signs of this oncoming kind of opioid crisis and didn't do anything? Well, Simi, the, the, this is the, one of the limitations of the bankruptcy system. It's not, it's not a system that's designed to produce accountability. Instead, the, the goal of the U.S. bankruptcy system is to um, take what would otherwise be otherwise productive companies and deleverage them and return the assets to productive use. So if Purdue is making other medicines that are good, we want Purdue to keep doing that. And the only way that Purdue is going to be able to keep doing that is if it can uh, clean up its books and deal with liabilities. But it leaves people very, you know, rightly feeling unsatisfied that justice hasn't been done. And you know, the Sacklers may contribute some blood money to a to a settlement, but. Um, they're going to still, in the end of the day, have billions of right. dollars left, and there will still be you know, many, many people who have you know, been incredibly harmed by opioids. Is this like, in We're, your experience then in studying bankruptcies, is this generally what happens? You have this crisis situation, whether it's going to Enron or whether it's Purdue Pharma, these companies kind of break up, we see them go away, and does that mean the whole thing goes away then? No, not actually. They, they, that, that where the company ceases to exist is really the the ex- exception rather than the rule. Usually, the company, the if there's a viable business model, the company clean, cleans up its books, it gets rid of liabilities, moves on, and is right back in business. So, if you look at let's say the U.S. airline industry, most of the large air, air, air carriers in the U.S. have gone through bankruptcy, um, some of them more than once, um, and they 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 deal with their liabilities and they come right back, they spring right back into business. Um, Something like Enron is the ex- is really is really more the exception, and even then, parts of Enron are still functioning, just owned by other other entities. Now. Right. So Purdue Pharma could emerge from this and move forward with its other patents and the other medicines that it produces. Oh, I, I assume that that will be the case, and you know, quite possibly still operating uh, under the name Purdue Pharma. Yeah, but would they want to do that? Like, how much of a change well, can they do going <laughs> forward? They, they, there, there may be a branding question whether they want to give themselves a new name. That, 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 that may be a smart move for them. But um, presumably, you know, if the, presumably the, if the pieces of Purdue that make um, you know, non-opioid drugs are valuable, those pieces will be kept together and they will keep operating. Yeah, I guess the question then about bankruptcy law, Adam, is and who does it protect? Does it protect the companies or is it protecting the people who are hurt by those companies? Well, it's in its, in its own way. It's act, it is protecting the people who are hurt by the companies that split. So, if you split up Purdue and just kind of sold it for scrap, you wouldn't get a lot of money. Um, Purdue's more valuable, 
as an operating concern than uh, than in liquidation. And by giving the stock in the re- in reorganized Purdue to the victims, they get the benefits of the val- of of the mint- of the retained value in Purdue. So Purdue goes forth after the bankruptcy, makes money. That mo- that's going to increase the value of the stock, which is now going to be owned by the opioid victims. Right. So then that the benefit of all of this moving forward is that the Sackler family is essentially giving up Purdue Pharma. You got it. The Sackler family will have uh, is not going to have any interest in Purdue Pharma going forward. One of the, there is a question about whether they're going to have to give up their interest in, an, in another pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical company um, that basically is man, uh, marketed opioids overseas. Right. So how long do you think this process is going to take? Oh, this is going to this. Uh, I think we're looking at you know two two and a half years before we really know how how things shake out in Purdue. We know what the general what the general picture of it's going to look like, but there's going to be a lot of wrangling about exactly how much money is going to be moving and exactly who who uh, which opioid victims are have what sort of claim. There's a whole range of opioid of opioid victims. And when I say victims, I'm not just talking about natural people like you and me. I'm talking about governmental units in particular, you know, states, counties, cities, claiming that they've had uh, various harms from um, everything from, you know, increased ambulance services to payment uh, on um, uh, of government insurance benefits, so forth. Right. And figuring out who's owed what and how the money gets divvied out, will, will, uh, that, that will take some time. Right. And these rules only apply to the United States, right? Because, I mean, it, the opioids were sold elsewhere, like in Canada. Absolutely. So at this point, it only applies to the United States. We And Purdue has not uh, commenced any sort of Canadian bankruptcy uh, petition, as far as I know. Um, if, if and when Purdue does that, there are procedures for coordination um, between U.S. and Canadian bankruptcy courts. We've seen that in the case of Nortel's bankruptcy in particular. And it, it actually has worked pretty well, but Canadian courts are not going to be bound by any U.S. decision and vice versa. I will have to wait and see what happens. Adam, thank you so much for explaining it to us. Oh, my pleasure, Simi. That was really interesting. That's Adam Levitin, a professor specializing in bankruptcy at Georgetown Law, explaining what happens now. You've seen the headline, undoubtedly, that Purdue Pharma, the maker of the opioid painkiller OxyContin, has filed for bankruptcy in the United States. And as Adam just explained there, this is a kind of a strategic step in the process, but it does mean that there will be more money available to the plaintiffs and different groups that have been suing uh, Purdue Pharma over this. But